Welcome to another virtual author chat at the Poison Pen Bookstore. I'm John Charles, and today I'm delighted to have back with us author Tom Meshery. I hope I got that right. And his editor, Jennifer Enderlin. Tom's new book. Oh, I'm Jennifer McCord. Jennifer McCord. I'm sorry, I'm thinking of a different editor. Yes. <laughs> the Honorable Jennifer Enderlin. What a great thought to think of her with me. <laughs> well, you're you're a great editor too, Jennifer oh, McCord. Thank you. Um, Tom's new book is The Case of the 66 Ford Mustang. Before we begin, I do want to let those tuning in know that The Poison Pen does have copies of both Tom's new mysteries, and we would be happy to hold one for you or put one in the mail. Just give us a call or go online to The Poison Pen Bookstore. It makes the perfect gift for the mystery reader in your life or for yourself. Now I'd like to welcome Jennifer and Tom. Thank you, John Charles. John Charles, we really appreciate this. It's always good to have a discussion with you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Um, let's start, for those that aren't familiar with you, Tom, your own life story before you became a published mystery writer is almost as fantastic as any novel I've read. So what can you tell us about <laughs> Tom before you started writing mysteries? Well, uh, I can go back to uh, my immigrant childhood, my uh, 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 time during the Second World War with my mother and sister in a Japanese internment camp. That dates back to uh, uh, the beginning of the Second World War to the end. And then we uh, met my father, who was already in uh, America um, after the war was over. And we settled in San Francisco. And it was in San Francisco that I sort of got the bug to be an athlete and went on to become a basketball player and a pretty darn good professional basketball player finally in the NBA. But uh, don't hold that against me, John Charles. I, you know, I am, I am a writer and, I, yeah. and, and eventually after my NBA career, I, I, was, uh, I went to the Iowa Writers Program at the University of Iowa and got my Master's of Fine Arts degree. So I feel I'm sort of legitimate now, but uh, Particularly now that uh, Jennifer has published a couple of my mystery books, I feel really legitimate. <laughs> well, before you were um, published mysteries, you also wrote poetry. Is that correct? And published it? Uh, yeah, that's that's true, John Charles. In in fact, that's what I got my master's in it at, in Iowa was in poetry, and uh, I have six collections of poetry, and and I very much believe that I'm a poet, and I think. Frankly, being a poet has helped me be a better uh, fiction writer. I think that it helps me uh, be more selective about language and perhaps be a little bit more conscious of metaphor and simile and symbolism and, 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 uh, and colors and the various kinds of concreteness that's necessary to um, provide the reader some scenery uh, in in, in mystery novels, because mystery novels are not just plots; they are the you know they are the development of characters and they are the development of, of of human nature. And I've always admired mysteries. Uh, I think I fell in love with mysteries, uh, and I've never been able to quite understand the, the whole idea of genre. I've always thought that mysteries. Uh, romances, uh, science fiction, uh, the supposed literary fiction, all belong in the same category. We are we're all trying to develop human beings through our characters that are recognizable by the readers and enjoyed by the readers. So uh, that's, uh, that's sort of my, that's sort of why I, I really feel that poetry has helped me a great deal. I think that's a very um, insightful look at it. I also wondered if coming from a poet's background, and I don't write poetry except briefly in grade school, and we won't go into that at this point, but um, <laughs> there's a concern about poetry, almost about brevity, because you want to you're not looking to expand things word count wise. You want to capture something as concisely as possible? You're absolutely right. I, the, the whole idea of compression 
Okay. It's very important in poetry. We compress the idea, but always compress the idea with expanding it so oh. that we may begin with a very concrete uh, object or a concrete idea. And then by the end of the poem, at least as the way I see it, it expands and it becomes uh, becomes broader and, and, and more universal. I always look to uh, Robert Haas, uh, the, the poet laureate of the United States a few years back as an inspiration. He always starts with the concrete and ends with the, uh, the, the, the broad subject that he really intended to when he started the poem. But you know, it's, it's uh, in fiction writing, um, I don't pay a whole lot of attention to that. I like the idea that poetry helps me work with language. So I kind of focus on language when I'm thinking about poetry in terms of fiction. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, what made you decide, okay, you've done a lot of things. You've been in sports, you've taught, you've written poetry, you've gone to graduate school. Why mysteries? At what point did you decide now I want to write a mystery? Well, it's it's a bit of a long story. I had a uh, years ago. Well, I was I was teaching high school at uh, at Reno High School. Um, I lived up in Truckee in the mountains near Lake Tahoe, and and uh, I would drive down to Reno and teach uh, English. And uh, at that time, I got a liposarcoma in my right calf, and uh, I had to have that cancer treated. And while I was being treated, I had to stay home with my leg lifted up on, on the couch. And somebody suggested I should read Tony Hillerman and uh, the mystery, the Navajo mystery novels. So I started with the first mystery novel. And, and by the time I was finished, uh, John Charles, I'll tell you, I was so hooked on the mystery, uh, on mystery writing. And I thought to myself, well, heck, I can do that. <laughs> so, so I set about writing a mystery, and I wrote 350 pages of a manuscript, and I sent it to a friend of mine, John Jackson, who uh, lives up in Missoula. He's a, just a terrific, uh, hard-boiled detective fiction writer. He's got a bunch of, uh, of mysteries out, and, and we were in Iowa together, good friends. And uh, he sent the, the manuscript back in with a red red pen at the top, and he said, "I." thought you could write better than this, Tom. <laughs> so that, that was the starting point. <laughs> well, I'm a very stubborn old coot. Mm -hmm. So I, I thought to myself, wait a minute, I'm not going to let him get away with this. But I did put it aside for a while. I did decide to do a little more research. I did decide to start reading more mysteries. I, I was really very much a novice at mystery writing and uh, in fiction writing in general. So um, I did do a lot more reading. And then finally, finally, I thought I was ready. And I did start uh, writing some fiction. And, and I got about three or four manuscripts written. Uh, none of them were fiction, uh, were, were, were mysteries. But then I, then I did get an idea for a mystery um, based on some characters that I had in college and and uh, came up with the Bravelli brothers. And then, lo and behold, my angel Jennifer appeared and said she loved the Bravelli brothers. And I said, I love you. And, uh, and off we were. Tell us a little bit about the first book and the characters that you introduced. That was the case of the 61 Chevy Impala. Yeah, Chevy Impala. Well, the, the key, the key uh, brothers are, are uh, Victor and Vincent, and uh, they um, they had own a, a used car dealership in uh, Oakland, California, on East Fourteenth Street, and it's a neighborhood. And right. I bring in all of the the neighborhood characters, and and there's a, a, a tavern next door, uh, run by and kind of an Irish immigrant guy whose name is Bodie Flynn. The tavern is called Flynn's. There are specific minor characters that always appear in all the books. And I plan in the third book, they're, they're all going to come back. They, they are repeated characters. And I like to think of them as minor characters, but not 
flat characters. I like the idea that they also can uh, grow and be a little bit different and, and express their ideas. And, 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 and they represent, uh, for me, in this book, they represent um, the, the average 1960s, 70s male. They, they, they're not a stereotype, actually, but they are what we remember back in those days, either fondly or unfondly, of those characters. And, um, and, and there's a number of them. There's Swanee, who runs a, uh, uh, a, a, um, a, a automobile repair area. And there's Jitters, who, who, who's a uh, Chevron gas station owner. And they all go to the tavern. They all meet at the tavern. They all talk at the tavern. And we get a lot of historical background through their voices. And um, then, of course, comes the, um, the, the Black Panthers. Terrence Bowles is a character in that first novel. He is introduced, and he is the Minister of Education. He's a fictional character. There was no such uh, Minister of Education um, for the Black Panthers. But I wanted to... Um, I wanted to, I did a lot of research about the Black Panthers. They did an awful lot of good in West Oakland. So I wanted to bring that out as well as being fair to the, the, the law enforcement. They were, they were pretty violent. But uh, Victor and Terrence become pals, sort of. I don't want to give away the book, but they become pals. And while he's there, he uh, encounters um, a, a very beautiful African-American woman, Dila Agbo, and falls in love with her. And this is very astonishing to him because he's a pretty basic Italian male uh, at that time, 26 years old. And, and, and he, he, he almost can't believe it, but he, but he does. And he follows through. And I, that romance will continue in the Mustang and into the third book, um, which I tentatively have, have named uh, the case of the Volkswagen hippie bus. And that is uh, finished in the first draft. And, and I'm working on this, the second draft right now. Jennifer sent it back to me with some wonderful criticism. And, <laughs> and you, can't, you can't imagine how important it is to have editorial help. Uh, because all we writers are just totally arrogant. We think we can, you know, knock off a manuscript and send it off and everybody's going to go hurrah, hurrah. But it's not, it's not the way it is. I've, I wrote Jennifer a, a small note and I said, you know, in writing, it is a village too. So we, we need you, John Charles, uh, and we need editors and we need people who love books. We need our readers. Um, so these characters keep coming up. And I like the idea, I've always liked the idea, and I think maybe that has to do with my background at Iowa. I was so exposed to fiction, uh, to a lot of fiction writers. A lot of my friends are fiction writers, and, and we keep in contact with each other. And the idea that, that, that characterization is so important. And for me, I, I couldn't write a book unless I had my characters in place first. I never have the plot. The plot comes to me as the book evolves. So uh, for me, those characters, Victor particularly, but and uh, the uh, and then Vincent begins to develop in the third book and uh, will become a little bit, he will have his own chapters. I don't want to leave Vincent out because they're twins and therefore have to be somehow uh, together all, you know, emotionally and, and spiritually all the time together. And, and so uh, the family, the, the Victor Gravelli family, there's been, that's, that's an immigrant family. I think back a little bit on my own immigrant past and, and draw from that past and, 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 and kind of bring it over to, to, to the Gravelli father, big Sal Gravelli, who always has his suspenders up and, and, uh, so I love these characters and I love talking about them and, 
And I finally understood, finally, finally understood what some of my fiction writers, friends used to say, that they would talk to their characters. And their characters would talk back to them. And I used to think, oh, well, that's just fiction writers. You know, they're just trying to intimidate us poets. And, and, uh, and then, but, but once I started writing fiction, I really got into it. Uh, boy, that's the truth. You know, sometimes I'll be having coffee in the morning and I'll say, hey, Victor, what did you, you know, and then I stop and I think, oh, no, I'm talking to the wind here. And uh, uh, hopefully my wife doesn't think I'm going over the edge. Well, I think for many writers, fiction writers, especially characters become real people to them. They worked with them. They've done, they've delved into their psyche. So, yeah, it's understandable how you can think of them as actually being not figments, but real entities. I bet you've heard that from a lot of people. We, yeah. do, we do a lot of interviews, a lot of pod, uh, podcasts. And I'm sure that you, that this is an experience you, you've, you've heard a, a number of times. Yeah, we temporarily lost Jennifer. I know there's some storms going on up in the Seattle area, so that may have affected her. But we'll continue on, and hopefully she'll be able to join us. Um, one of my questions for you about the new book, The Case of the um, 66 Ford Mustang, is in some ways it's a much more personal case for your characters because it starts out with a murder, but it involves one of their family members. Oh, gosh, yes. And it was a sad... It was a sad time for me writing that. I when I, I sort of knew that there had to be. Um, I sort of knew that that Mario in my head. I knew that Mario was a, was a tragic figure. Um, I wasn't sure how tragic I wanted to make him, uh, but then I finally decided that Mario would be a touchstone for all the rest of the novels. Now, I don't mean to sound um, too optimistic at age 85, John Charles, but I have about six or seven books in store that I would like to write. And, um, and, and, and a lot of them are already in, in outline. Um, but I thought that Mario could be as a, um, a graduate of the military academy and as a Vietnam uh, a captain in the Vietnam War and a returned uh, Vietnam uh, a soldier who uh, lost an arm, who became embittered uh, by the war, would represent the time in which these novels take place. And that's sort of how I saw it. So I thought to myself, yes, Mario is this going to be the subject of the mystery that um, Victor will have to solve. But from then on, Mario will become a touchstone for all of the uh, times that occur in the future in future books. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's how I thought about it. And, and I think that's working because in this in the third book, I, I'm seeing that Victor, ref, Victor and Vincent reflect upon Mario. Mario's name will appear in almost all will appear will appear in all all the books. So I I see him as a touchdown for the early seventies and and the Vietnam period that uh, in which these books exist. And uh, you know I don't want to make a lot of uh, noise about historical because the books are not historical; they're mysteries. <laughs> but uh, the the time in which they uh, occur is is a very tumu uh, chaotic, tumultuous time and very um, un sort of unnerving because mm -hmm. if we recall, we all lived through it. And so we know what that was all about. I don't think anybody really has, has ever, at least I've never read a really good definitive uh, book about that period of time, um, nonfiction. Um, uh, there's been some real good ones, but but never, you know, some very decent uh, war uh, books. Uh, you know, uh, uh, the O'Brien book, uh, the, the 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 things they carry, is a wonderful uh, novel about uh, not the Vietnam War. But I've never seen a really good book 
a nonfiction book about that period of time. And that's the time, that, of course, that's interests me so much because of my age at that time. And, and uh, you know, that's when I grew up. And, and that's when the Bravelli brothers are growing up. Well, I think you, I mean, they, the books are mysteries and they're, they have a very strong focus on a crime and the solving of that crime. But you do capture the time period very well, too, because that's part of the story. And I think we forget, well, some of us, listening and may not have been alive or aware of that time how just how chaotic as you mentioned it was it was a very challenging time and one of my questions for you and for jennifer as your editor is how do you capture that time period in your books respectfully but also with the knowledge that today readers are looking at it through a different prism i mean when you look at the 60s from the people living they would say and do things to, that today were kind of like no, that's that's not something we would um, accept. Well, I'm I'm going to throw the ball into Jennifer's court first. I have some idea, so you can come back to me. Okay. But Jennifer, what do you think? Um, I think, well, first place, I think it's it's through the character's lens. It's how the characters respond to the time frame that helps anybody who wants to know it or understand it to read it. Mm -hmm. When you have such a diversity of characters, Tom. And you and I have talked about this, that your secondary characters are just phenomenal. They're so important. And I feel like I was telling the other day that we were I was driving down the street in Seattle and I heard myself in my own voice say something that I thought, is it Brody? Body would say. And I started laughing because I thought, well, that character, I've absorbed that character in myself somehow. So I think part of it is through characters, how they look at things, how they relate about it, how do they talk about it, why Tom's dialogue is so important. Um, we also have, I think, the relationship of these two brothers, the Bravelli brothers, which I think is so crit critical and important to this story. And how do they relate their life and then their outside life? They have this very vast inner life as being twins. And then they have the outside life of how does that re how does the setting they live in respond to that, and that also is a a way for readers to understand that. Um, and so I think to me a good mystery provides information or provides a, a way of looking at certain situations that you yourself would not be in, but you might be interested in looking at it. And, you know, think of the early the books, the mysteries that are written in the early 1900s, 1921, about 1921. I'm thinking of, uh, you know, various writers who've written that. And Anne Perry, for instance, has written some books during that time. Jacqueline Winspear has written books during the World War One over in Britain, World War Two, And you get a look at what that's like. So I think that's what attracts me about reading about that, reading about that time. And so as an editor, the questions that I have is how authentic is it? Does it seem to fit with the time? And also language, the use of language, because the buzzwords are the words that we use today are not the ones that used in the 1960s. You know, so part of it is that, is the writers, you know, aware of that. Um, the other thing is that the press, we have some young interns and they read the books and I'm curious how they respond and what they think because they have their viewpoints and we have this discussion, this education about what how they think about it versus how we think about it for what we lived through. And they don't have that experience and vice versa, I don't have their experience of living, growing up in technology. So it's it's learning that. Does that make sense to you, John? Yeah, it does. And I'm glad that you you mentioned authentic, which in one of those happy circumstances is Webster's word of the year. So we can kind yes, of talk about <laughs> yeah, how important it is for a writer to be authentic to themselves, to their story. Um, you can't, writers who try to write to the market or try to write the next bestseller, like the Da Vinci Code or whatever it is, are never really going to succeed because they're not being authentic. That's, well, thank uh, you. That's really I, true. Uh, that is true. I, I test my uh, a lot of my um, writing with my granddaughters. Mm. And, uh, you know, I send off pages to my, my two granddaughters. One is uh, one worked for 
Christie's in New York and the other one's at Columbia uh, in New York. So I sent it to them and I said, you know, hey, test this against some of the, some of your your classmates, uh, some of your friends in the, in the, in the city and, and see what they think. And, and you know, John Charles Day, those, those young people, they're 24 to 21 years old. And, and they've come back to me and said, you know, this is really interesting stuff. We didn't know anything about this. You know, how, you know, what about the Black Panthers? Did they really do this? Did they do that? Did they, did they have schools, after school programs? Did they have, did they, you know, provide breakfast for, for, you know, for, for poor families and, and, you know, or did they actually, uh, you know, attack a police, but, you know, it's, uh, they just are astounded by some of the history that's involved back then. And so uh, I, I like the idea of uh, the, uh, I'm losing something here. Uh, okay. Now I'm back. Um, uh, so I, I enjoy that. So so Jennifer is testing uh, some of the writing against her uh, interns, and I'm testing my uh, some of my writing against my grand with my granddaughters. And, and God bless them; they're the best in the world. I want to tell you. And um, of course, everybody's grandchildren are the best. I'm sure, uh, but mine are better. <laughs> so, uh, and they uh, and they they, they um, I think they validate. They validate the idea of writing from um, another historical period of time. I, I love Jacqueline Winspear. I love that First World War. I'm, I'm kind of crazy for anything written within the early uh, 20th century. I, you know, I love reading about the, uh, there's a, 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 a Rusnikov series of, of, of uh, that's, uh, oh gosh, I've forgotten the other author. So, um, uh, that's about the revolution and about the Soviets during the 1940s. And, and I love reading Second World War novels about Second World War. Um, I have a, a goddaughter who just wrote a, a marvelous book about a, spy, a French spy, um, uh, and work is to die beautiful. She's, and it's doing very, very well. And, and, uh, and it's all about uh, the Second World War under uh, the espionage during the Second World War, the Belgian and French espionage in the Second World War. So I'm fascinated with all kinds of uh, novels that are set in historical periods of time. And, and that was my outlook. That was what I was thinking about, of course, when I wrote about the Bravellis, that, that this was this period of time that, that perhaps it will always be the, I don't know, the hub of the wheel, uh, so to speak, uh, in terms of the uh, 20th century. and, and and everything that came with it, with the, 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 the women's movement, the, you know, the rising consciousness of human beings and voting rights and yeah, the whole. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's, been, it's been an actual, I, writing fiction, writing these novels have been very, very hard for me because I'm a little bit of on the job training, sort of, uh, uh, you know, I've had to learn as I've, I've, I've gone along. Uh, but it's been a joy. It's been a lot of, it's been a pleasure. My wife always knows where she can find me. I'm in front of the computer. She says, that's okay. You're not down at the bar doing shots and beers. So, uh, <laughs> so here I am uh, with you and, 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 and loving talking about the books. Well, I can sense that history is definitely one of your passions in the book, but I think one of the other passions and not it's not one of mine, but I can see it in your writing and your story is cars. And do <laughs> characters is that something your characters get from you? I personally don't understand it, but I appreciate how you write about it. <laughs> well, John Charles, I will tell you that I I love the exterior of cars. I love the look of cars. And I've always been I've always been a fan of the various models of cars. Now, if you want to ask me about the engines and the, the working parts of an automobile, I'm going to have to uh, admit that I, I go to my, uh, my adopted uh, 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 grandsons uh, for that kind of information. They, there are a couple of people I, I talk to about engines and about uh, you know, the, the various moving parts of an automobile. But the exterior of cars, I'm, I'm, 
you know, I kind of like to draw and uh, I have a little bit of art talent and I like to draw cars and always have, even when I was a kid. And, and uh, so that's where my real love comes in. So I think I'm, 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 I'm reasonably accurate, I think, with the, the engine parts, uh, but I'm, I'm, I know I'm right on with the exterior. And the interior, I love the upholstery too. The upholstery is, is very important in, in, in automobiles. You convey that through your characters. Um, let's talk a little bit about the relationship between a writer and an editor, because that fascinates me. What do you think are the key components to a successful relationship? Well, I, I suppose, honestly, you know, if you want to be, you know, the, look at it from the broad point of view, honesty, I think, is, it begins with it. it, it you know, when Jennifer uh, contacted me, the, the first thing she said is that she really loved the books. And, and I could tell from her voice she did. And, uh, and I only later found out that she has twins in her family. And, and this is a subject that she, she appreciates. But they, that first honest uh, uh, evaluation of my book uh, did uh, uh, move me, and uh, and that's the, that was the broad appeal. And then, of course, after after that, I'm uh, I'm indebted to her to uh, because she is, uh, you know, she. I don't think Jennifer takes many prisoners. I think she's uh, she gets she gets right to it, and if she thinks there's a problem, she's going to tell you. And uh, she's not going to be wishy-washy, and and uh, and and I I I told her right away. I said, look, I was a basketball player for hundreds of years, and I had a coach who who never stopped calling me except you know you know four-letter words, and and uh, so I have a very thick skin. So you know, and so I wasn't going to be uh, upset, and I was going to take her criticism. Uh, and, and work with it. And boy, she's been very, very helpful to me. And, and then, uh, you know, I'll, I'll let Jennifer explain her part of it. So, um, John, um, I think, thank you for this question. I think um, part of my, I see part of my role as an editor is to try to figure out how the author creates the work that they do and how do they think about their work? And then how do they relate themselves to their own creative identity, I guess, as best I could say. Um, and so talking with Tom and talking with him about his work has always been fascinating to me because of his history as a basketball player, as an immigrant, and his family history is amazing. He's related to the Tolstoys. Um, so I, I felt very honored to even talk with him on the phone. There was an intimidation factor for me. Uh, because he's a poet, he's taught writing, and I figured that he knew a lot about what he was doing, which is right. He does know a lot about, and he, and he cares a lot about words. So we had that common commonality of goal to get a story that could be the best it could be. And I also thought that he had a way of writing authentic characters, the word authentic. Um, as Tom alluded to, I do have identical twin sisters. And so Tom had written about these two characters that struck me as really um, exactly how twins behave. Um, and my sisters are always complaining about people who cannot do that right. So I thought Tom had did that. And I think one of the questions I asked him is, how do you know this? Um, do you know twins or do you have twins in your family or something? So I wanted to hear that experience. But I also think the other part for me was to be able to figure out how to talk to him about story. What did he need to know about story that I knew? What did I need to know about a story that I didn't know? And then how to make that work together, which is why synopsis are, can be important or writing information about that so that I understand the goal of the story. And sometimes I, when I talk to Tom, I wanted to know what his goal was with these characters. What did he want these characters to experience? And then theoretically the reader to experience because the characters are experiencing it. And what I really like about Tom's uh, mystery series is he has so much a variety of characters that he can, that he has. And Tom, you did talk about sweets, one of my favorite characters. Uh -huh. 
Oh, yeah. I, I leave Sweets out. Oh my God. Oh God. I mean, Sweets is just a great character. And then he eats so much. You feel, you know, you eat with him and you go, oh my God, have I put on another 10 pounds or something? Um, but he just has these ways with the characters that I really enjoy. And I really like the relationships that these characters have with each other. Um, when they go to the bar, you know, we have the Irish stew, we have the chili, we have all the food, which is always good. So you're also eating around San Francisco and Oakland. And the setting is really important. Tom really has developed that setting uh, for the 1960s. And uh, he has that energy that I, he captures that energy to me of that time. And I was on campus during that time going to college. And so you, carry, you caught that energy of what it was like, the chaoticness of it. It was chaotic at times on campus. Um, and so you caught that, you know, in the story as well. But it was mainly to me to talk to him about how he perceived his work. What kind of story did he want to write? And how did he think about it? And then could I relate to that? And then comes the trust. Because we had common around and we could trust each other. I could trust what Tom was telling me. I could trust that he would get back to me with his work. And is, I just heard that he trusted what I said to him about it too, which is good. And so we have that relationship of trust with always trying to make whatever we're doing as best that we can make it. Does that make sense with everybody here? It does. And uh, as I said before, Jennifer, it is a village. It is a village. Writers are not just isolated out there uh, writing on their own. They, they need the support. They need the help. And uh, boy, you sure have helped me. Well, thank you. And so I, I think I always ask, am I making sense? Yeah. I do ask the author, am I making sense to you? Does this make sense to you of how you write? And I'm always, um, being a former musician myself, at one time in my life, I'm always curious about the creative self. How do they work? What works for them? How do they produce? When do they produce? Some writers, you know, write all just sort of binge write. And then there's the writers that are so disciplined, they write every day and they're right there. And I kind of wanted to know his style of his own creative work, his own creative life. So um, things that I would ask if, you know, we need to revise something, it also gives you a sense of how long it might take for it to come back. And like we're there's a revision in book three and I'm open to whenever he can get it back to me because I think that's really important, but we aren't on a deadline with that, which is good. So part of it is that. It's just the the combination of the business of publishing, the creative world, and working with the author to make it happen. Is that one of the advantages, Jennifer, of working for a smaller press? Because you don't have these strict, like it has to be in production this month or you've lost an entire year. I think that's one of the advantages. There isn't that kind of pressure. And I, I think that's, that's uh, and Phil Garrett, who owns the press and is the publisher, um, he's accommodating that way. He thinks about it that way. Um, and so, yes, if we have a, we want to have a book out in a certain period of time, usually if you write a mystery, you want one a year. Mm -hmm. But there is that ability to be flexible. And that is helpful. I think. I do have a hypothesis for you, Jennifer, as an editor, and I'm not sure whether it's correct or not because I don't have your background, but my thought is you can teach writers and aspiring writers a lot of things, but one thing you can't teach is voice. That has to be part of the writer when they first start. I think that's absolutely right. Mm -hmm. And I've been in the industry for a long time, John, and you know worked in the romance industry for years and worked for a national chain. And um, a voice was always what attracted me to a writer, uh, a writer. What's the voice? And how to develop that voice or keep that voice. And I have a little saying in my, in my office that says, I know it when I read it. And you do know it. And I can remember, you know, readers will come in and tell me. Um, I could go right down the list of who people come in and say, Jen, did you read this? This is a pick. Pay attention. Um, 
and I would go, thanks a lot. And, you know, and, and then that I always tested that against my, my, my feeling about it. Did I feel that way about that book or not? Which, you know, helped me because I built my reputation on some of that. I was a good, good pick at voice. Was this a voice to pay attention to? That's exact. That's exactly right, uh, Jennifer. I remember uh, uh, reading Alistair MacLeish, the, the British uh, poet, was asked right. one time how uh, he uh, knew whether a poem was good or not, and he, it was a good poem. And he said, "When the, the little hairs on the back of my neck stand up." So I think that's what you're talking about too. Yeah, it's that you just get this feeling, and I used to, I just always get a little shiver down my back too sometimes. And when I'm talking to a writer about an idea and they want to write something and then all of a sudden I hear about it and I think, oh yeah, this is going to work. You just, you just kind of know. But part of it is, John, I've been a reader all my life. I read all the time. And I was very fortunate to learn to read when I was very young. And I was in a early childhood education program at the University of Minnesota. And I learned to read when I was about three years old. And reading was just something I always did. It was a skill that I had. I didn't have Tom's basketball skill, I can tell you that. But I had the reading yeah. skill. And that was something that I just always relied on. I could read all the time. And so part of it is years of reading. You know, you know, I've read a lot of different writers. I've read things. I've read things. And you, and you begin, you read, read stories and you begin to understand how you read, too. I've been very fortunate that way. And, and, and uh, to add to that a little bit, Jennifer, I've been very fortunate because I, I've been able to read in other languages. I, I, right. I grew up uh, uh, with Russian before I spoke English, so I've been able to, to, to listen to the nuances of, of the Russian language. And, and I was a French major in college, so I speak a, well, reasonably good French. And, and so I was been able to read some French and see and, and listen to the rhythms of that language and and be able to to um, see the differences between the rhythms of the English language and the and the French language, the the Latinate language, and then the, the Slavic languages, which has a completely different rhythm. And my wife sometimes accuses me of writing in Russian and not in English. I would, <laughs> I think, I think you think in Russian, Tom. I I feel like I'm talking to sometimes that you're thinking in Russian when we discuss things. The other thing is I was being a musician. I learned the idea of rhythm of, because I used to play classical music and music in or band and orchestra. And I realized that whole thing of pulling that, pulling it together apart to a sound to create something is a lot of what publishing is. You're pulling a story together to create, to get it out. And it's reading instead of hearing that I think that that whole experience too got me into how rhythm works on the page. Yeah, yeah Mel says that I, I'm addicted to the subordinate clause. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's absolutely Russian. Yeah, so um, you just, sometimes you hear things that, you know, you can hear sort of this, almost the rhythm, the rhythm of the words on the page. And people talk about that now. They started to talk about that in writers organization you know writers teach teaching writing they talk about the rhythm on the page but i think that the my background of that growing up with that i just didn't realize that that was also something i knew that i was aware of the rhythm of the page the rhythm of the words on the page and does it work yeah and that can be different than the pacing because you can exactly. talk about the pacing of a story versus how yeah the story you're right, exactly, and that's where I think Tom, being a poet, he's he has not he really selects words to work with what he's trying to do in the sentence structure, and so that there's a natural there's some rhythm there already, and he understand. I don't think you know that, Tom, that you are like that. Huh. Well, I I hope that's true because I like that idea a lot. Well, the other part is Tom. I think you're just physically. You played basketball these years. You're all, always moving around the court. And I think in a story, you're always moving around. Same well, kind of. Three different ways that people think. Um, yeah. You think in words, or sometimes you think in pictures. And sometimes right. if you're an athlete or a dancer, you think in motion. So there's uh, uh, yep. three three modes of learning. And, uh, and 
you know, so I've at least I've had the, the word part and the motion part. I'm not sure about the picture part. Yeah. Well, for me, it's interesting because for me, it's always the picture. I visually pull things up and that's how I remember. I'll suddenly I'll pull up a visual memory of something of words or a scene or something. And that's what I remember. Now, my wife, Melanie, is an artist, and, and, and yeah. she thinks completely in, in pictures. In fact, she, she doesn't even like to explain things in words. She says, i got to do something visual to, to explain something to you. Well, I do both, but it's that. But anyway, so, John, I think part of it is that, and this is the kind of discussion that, as an editor, is so valuable to have, to understand how someone thinks about writing uh, words, uh, how they create, think about story, and where the stories, the internal story comes from inside themselves. Um, because I always think that it's, that it's really important to know that. And as um, someone who has been an, a reader all my life, uh, when, you know, something can be, I begin to realize that if I don't like something strongly, it's as important as if I love something strongly. There's something that's going on on the page with the words. And so I really try to look at that too. What is going on here for me? I think you can actually tell as a reader the difference between a writer or an aspiring writer, someone who, whose goal is they want to get a story out versus someone who just wants to be a writer. Yeah, I think you're right. And I always think that um, I always think that story matters. Mm -hmm. um, I, as a bookseller, I would have these experiences where people would read a story and come in and tell me how it changed their lives. Yeah. You and know, everybody, everybody has a narrative. Uh, it's right. uh, yeah. The, the, one of the owners of the Golden State Warriors, Peter Goober, is a, a, a producer of Hollywood and uh, uh, one of the major producers in Hollywood. And he wrote a book, and and in it, uh, he says that everybody as a narrative. It's just a matter of being able to uh, express it. And he says he expresses his, his particular narrative. That's what he looks for when he's uh, evaluating uh, uh, scripts. Uh, he's looking for that particular narrative uh, that he thinks the audience would, would associate with. And, and, it's, uh, and, I, and I'm, sure that's, uh, I'm, I'm sure that's true. And God, you know, sometimes if you just go on Facebook, you you run into about, you know, hundreds and hundreds of stories and you think to yourself, oh, if I could only write that or if I could, you know, these are all legitimate narratives, but they're just not in book form yet. Yeah, I think that's really good, Tom, about the narrative and how he talks about the narrative to the audience. I think that's, you know, that's an important part. And, you know, as a bookseller, someone who's a publisher, you're thinking about how does this narrative fit with an audience that we might know? Yes, and I also think it's important, uh, you know, getting back to where we started uh, this discussion, the idea of character and characterization. Yeah. If the character has a story to tell, um, it will come out in the book, and the book will be far more successful if it's an honest narrative. And that's what I hope uh, Victor uh, has has you know, has is a, an honest narrative. And, uh, you know, he's, he's growing. He's not, the, he's not the same person he was in the first book. In this book, he'll be, a, you know, he will grow more in the third book and his, his character will change and there will be different uh, reflections of his character as we move on through the Brabelli Brothers series. That's a, a wonderful point. And um, perhaps we may have to end because we're running out of time, but I think you're right, um, Tom, character is key for a reader to identify with it. I would add, you don't have to necessarily like a character, you just have to feel they're honest, because I'm thinking of Gone Girl, and I couldn't stand anybody in that book, but <laughs> that, the characters were honest, and that story. You're absolutely, you're absolutely right, John Charles. <laughs> yeah, well, so one other little thing is, um, back to characters also, readers then can identify with things and if they see a character go through something they've gone through and then how the character handles it and it's honestly then that's what changes their behavior or they think oh I didn't know that yeah. I mean uh, that always struck me and people would come in and tell me that when I was a bookseller 
I read this book and um, I'm thinking about this now, which I wouldn't have thought about yesterday. Or I think my daughter can do this now because I read it in a book that it's okay to do that. And I thought that's the power of story yeah. and characters. Um, people can learn. And that's what you look for. There's little, you know, there's always little gems and stories that uh, from readers that you trust. I mean, writers that you trust and who have an honest character that they write about. And you remember that. At least I do. I think that's, that's very perceptive. Before we have to um, conclude. Yeah. Mentioned, um, Tom, that there's book works in the project, so we can count on a few more stories. Anything else that you'd like to tell us about that we maybe want to watch for? Well, I, my memoir, as uh, according to Jennifer, is supposedly coming out in August of 2004, oh. and uh, we're both very excited about that. Um, uh, talking about honesty, boy, writing a memoir, if you're if you're not honest, and if that is probably one of the most painful experiences I've ever had, and uh, so, but we're looking, we're excited about it. I think it's a, it's, I think it's going to be a good revelation. It's a story of, of a, of an immigrant kid who, who came to the United States without the English language and wound up being a, an advanced placement English teacher and a writer of fiction and poetry. So. Uh, and in, in sort of in the middle, I had this NBA career. You know how that goes. You know, <laughs> just sports. It's uh, so. Uh, so John, it, we should we should have him back to when that book comes out. Yeah, um, we're gonna we'll verify all that. But it's an it, it it's uh, it's a really marvelous story of hope and joy and you know struggle, Tom, because you had to you had to figure this all out too. And whatever. Anyway, um, thank you. Oh, thank you. Before so we, um, I cut you off, can readers, are there ways readers can find out more about your books through social media, both Tom and Jennifer the Press? Well, Tom, we have our website, Camel Press, and Tom's on there, but Tom, you have a website. And I do. Also... I have a website. I have a, I have a website, uh, TomMasheri.com. And I also have a, I'm also on Facebook and Instagram. And uh, so you have, you have a blog that you write. And I have a blog. Yeah. Michelle's musing on sports literature and life. And yeah. I just talked this morning before I came on the show um, about the, the recent uh, NBA tournament that's going on in Las Vegas. <laughs> oh, good. And all my blogs end with a poem. So if you don't <laughs> like sports, the poems are always good. There you go. Um, I can't believe how quickly we've had our time just fly right by. The Poison Pen has been fortunate to have back with us Jennifer and Tom. Tom's new book is The Case of the 66 Ford Mustang. I'd like to thank both of them for their insight, their perception, and for being willing to share that with me and with those tuning in. Thank you both. Thank you, thank you. and happy holidays to everybody. Happy, uh, happy holidays. holidays to you, John Charles. Thank you. All right. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.